Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. And kicking off a spending battle with Republicans, President Biden unveiling his budget plan in Philadelphia. What's in it and how Republicans are expected to respond. NTD's Iris Tao is on location in Philadelphia, where the president spoke earlier today. At a union hall here in Northeast Philadelphia, President Biden unveils his budget plan for the fiscal year of 2024. He says his plan will cut the deficit by $3 trillion over the next 10 years. It's going to create good-paying jobs, and we can pay for these jobs by reducing the deficit two ways. Like, for example, cutting $160 billion in Medicare expenses is one. But we also have to ask the wealthiest and biggest corporations to begin to pay their fair share. A major component of Biden's means to cut the deficit is to make the wealthy pay more in taxes. He's proposing to raise Medicare taxes on Americans making more than $400,000 a year, impose a new minimum tax on billionaires, and hike the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%. That paid for everything and still allowed me to reduce the deficit. Just begin to pay your fair share. While some Democrats voice support for Biden's plan. We're going to say to the folks at the very top, hey, you can contribute a little bit more to something that is beneficial to everyone. Biden's proposals have little chance of becoming law as Republicans control the House and are opposing such tax increases. So we'll analyze his budget and then we'll get to work on our budget. But unfortunately, the president being so far delayed delays us in this process as well. And President Biden acknowledges former President Trump's re-election bid at one point during a speech. Watch. I had a big fight with uh, the former president uh, and maybe future president. Bless me, Father. And I asked President Biden when will he announce his re-election bid. This is what he told me. Biden, when you. will you announce your re-election bid? When I tell you. Biden's budget announcement on Thursday officially kicks off a battle with Republicans over tax rates and spending. It's also notable that Biden chose this place in Pennsylvania to make the announcement, which is a key battleground state for the 2024 presidential election. Reporting from Philadelphia, Alice Howe, Wendy D. News. Zooming in on President Biden's budget proposal, we're joined by Ira Melman, the media director for Federation for American Immigration Reform. Ira Melman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Ira, we often hear about the human toll uh, and the impact from, say, drugs and human trafficking on the southern border and uh, from illegal immigration. But there's also a financial burden on the American taxpayer. Uh, the president in Pennsylvania today giving a speech on his budget proposal to reduce the deficit. Your organization has just released a report on this uh, major financial burden of illegal immigration. What are some of these the major components here, and is there anything the president can do? Well, the, the president can do a lot. Uh, you know, over the past two years, he has opened up that border. We have had unprecedented illegal immigration in the two years that he has been in office. And this is costing the American public a huge amount of money. Uh, it, it nets out to the American taxpayer at $151 billion a year. Uh, we, we lay out about $182 billion in services and benefits for illegal aliens and their dependents. Uh, they pay about $31 billion in taxes. 
taxes. So the American public is left on the hook for about $151 billion a year. The majority of that, by the way, comes out of state and local budgets. Uh, the federal government pays about $66 billion. State and local governments who never asked for this, who have no control over the border, they are the ones that are picking up most of the costs for education, for health care, for the essential daily human services that are provided to illegal aliens and their families. Iris, so you have the uh, tax implications, which are obviously uh, significant. What are the impacts of illegal immigration on, say, wages and job opportunities for American workers? Well, obviously, the law of supply and demand can't be repealed even by the president or Congress. Uh, if you flood the labor market with a lot of workers, and it particularly hurts uh, workers at the lower skill levels uh, of our labor force, uh, it drives down wages. If you are going to bring in lots of people whose skills match people who are already struggling uh, to keep their heads above water in this economy, then it is going to make it even more difficult for them to uh, to get the wages that they need uh, to take care of their families. So it, it disproportionately impacts poorer Americans. You know, the president keeps telling us that he's the champion of the working class American, uh, but what he is doing in immigration policy is precisely the opposite. He is putting them further behind the eight ball here because, uh, it, you know, it's not people sitting on Wall Street who are competing for jobs with the uh, illegal aliens who are coming across. It, it's the people working in blue collar jobs, the ones who are already struggling. And this is just making it so much worse. What are some of the major consequences of actually not addressing the fiscal burden of illegal immigration? Well, the, the, obviously, you, you have state and local governments now uh, that are struggling uh, to make ends meet. You know, California just had to cut bu its budget by, uh, I think, three and a half percent for this coming fiscal year. And yet, you know, you have states like California that continue to offer new benefits and new services to illegal aliens. So while the federal government is responsible primarily, you do have state and local governments uh, that have decided they're going to be sanctuaries for illegal aliens, they're going to protect people, and in addition, they're going to offer benefits and services that really aren't essential. Uh, you know, increasingly, states are offering in-state tuition benefits at public universities and colleges for illegal aliens. Uh, California it wants to extend Medi-Cal, which is essentially the state version of Medicaid, uh, to every uh, illegal alien in the state. So they keep piling on the burdens. Uh, and it's not surprising that California, by far, has the greatest share of the burden. So it, it, it just makes it more difficult for these already struggling localities to provide the basic services that citizens require right now. Ira Melman, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate your perspective. Thank you. To discuss more about the probe into the origins of the virus, we had a chance to sit down with Congressman Ronnie Jackson, member of the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Here's our discussion. Congressman Ronnie Jackson, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Steve. I appreciate you having me. Congressman, I want to ask you about the recent, uh, I guess, admission from the FBI that the COVID lab leak theory may have actually been true. Uh, what are your initial thoughts from hearing those? Well, my initial thoughts are where have they been for the last two and a half, three years, to be honest with you. You know, uh, I think that this is indicative of something that's happening all over the country right now. I think that uh, the Republicans are in charge right now of the House of Representatives. We have oversight authority. We're taking an aggressive approach to oversight across the board, including uh, the, the origins of COVID, which is uh, one of the subcommittees that I'm 
on the, the uh, Select Committee for Coronavirus. And I think that people are seeing the writing on the wall right now. They realize that whistleblowers are coming forward and that the truth is coming out. People are scrambling to make sure that they get on the right side of this issue uh, before they get drawn into it. And I think the, uh, the FBI Director Ray coming out, uh, he did that because the uh, Department of Energy came out with their, uh, with their assessment. And slowly but surely, everybody's going to start admitting what most of us in this country have known since day one. There's a lot out there. We have a lot of digging to do, but uh, I'm excited to get to the bottom of this once and for all. And, you know, it's important because we can never let this happen again. Congressman, at the White House, whether it's in the briefing room or in other uh, venues, the question is being asked, President Biden, will you hold China accountable for the lab leak? And uh, to you, what does holding China accountable actually look like? Well, I don't know what it looks like now. I mean, I think, you know, a couple years ago, uh, we should have held them accountable and the whole the, the the entire world should have risen up and made china you know financially responsible for for what had happened now we need to get to the root of the costume i'm convinced that this came from the wuhan lab i don't really think it was released intentionally i don't have any reason to believe that at this point i think it was accidentally leaked out but i want to know when, why they were doing that kind of research uh, on this virus to start with we need to go back and, and i think the main thing that we had the two big tool we have in our toolbox right now is sanctions but the whole world should sanction china on this, right? China destroyed the economies of people, uh, of countries all over the planet. And everyone should be upset about this and everyone should be trying to hold China accountable. And if we all get together uh, around the world and, and acknowledge that they did this and that they caused us, uh, you know, uh, our health and our jobs uh, and the education of our children and all these other things, I think that we can come together and China could be properly punished for this. Carson, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about the vaccines. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of concern over the side effects. You also a medical yeah. doctor. Uh, how are you viewing this right now? Well, I'm viewing this as uh, the fact that, you know, uh, I've been saying this all along. Uh, this should have been a personal decision for each and every American to make on their own. They should have went into this uh, knowing that this was a vaccine that was being utilized under emergency youth authorization rules, essentially an experimental vaccine that we had no data on, no long-term data whatsoever. And we still don't have any long-term data. So I don't know what the long-term consequences of this are. I don't know if it's going to be dangerous uh, in the long term for women uh, that become pregnant. I don't know if it's going to affect the fertility of women that want to get pregnant. I don't know if it's going to continue uh, to, uh, uh, to cause spikes in myocarditis in young healthy males. Uh, I know that some of that stuff has been going on. Uh, we, we need to know. Uh, we don't know. And the fact that they forced this vaccine on large parts of a U.S. population via mandates in the healthcare industry and in the military and really forced it on a lot of people uh, in, in other ways, people that had the choice of losing their job or getting vaccinated. Uh, this was this is a complete travesty. Uh, this this was medical malpractice, and we need to get to the bottom of it. And we just don't have those answers yet. And, and the fact that they're wanting to give it to children right now it makes me incredibly upset. There is absolutely, positively, no reason to give this vaccine to a young, healthy child. They do not have a risk, a high risk of hospitalization, illness, and certainly not of death. And there's no reason to be giving this vaccine, which is still being used in an experimental context under emergency use authorization to young healthy children and that's just another indication of how far off our public health authorities in this country have become people in this country have no trust or confidence in the public health sector at all anymore and that's that that's gonna uh, that's gonna be a problem for us in the future texas congressman ronnie jackson thank you so much thank you appreciate it steve thank you does faith still have relevance to all that we have been experiencing in american government and politics Dr. A.R. Bernard, pastor of the Christian Cultural Center, counsels politicians, entertainers, and business leaders. 
NTD's Kelly Wright talked with the pastor about divine order in a changing culture and finding a positive direction for government. Well, here on NTD News, it's an honor right now to introduce to many of you, and some of you know him, Dr. A.R. Bernard, and he is the pastor of one of the largest churches in New York, uh, the uh, Christian Cultural Center. Cultural yeah. Center. And it's, it's a, a delight to have you on the program today, first of all. You, but you're here in Washington for a specific purpose, and that's to talk about the intersection of the Bible with culture. And you've met with members of Congress, you've met with ambassadors or other members of Congress. Where do you see the intersection of the Bible with today's culture, and how great of an impact can it make in healing the soul of America? You know, it's interesting, uh, Kelly. First of all, it's good to be with you on your program. Uh, congratulations as you continue to build this out. Um, you know, it's interesting because by the Middle Ages, the three Abrahamic faiths that had the greatest religious influence on Europe and into the Americas were called people of the book. And that book was central to their identity. Of course, the Enlightenment came in, we started to change our thinking, we spent the last hundred years of the 20th century with all of these isms coming in to change the dominant narrative that has shaped Amer uh, civilization, not just American society, but civilization uh, uh, throughout the, the, the millennia that uh, have gone by. And we are now realizing that all of those things have failed. We understand clearly, you appreciate this, that God created government, but people created politics with all of its political constructs, uh, its ideas, policies, and practices. God created government. Uh, that's divine, you know, to preserve order, to restrain evil, to protect the life and dignity of the human person, to preserve and promote the, the common good, and, and to promote justice. But how we do that are constructs that come from human beings. And when we when God no longer informs our politics, we lose our moral compass and we begin to move away from the original intent in the mind of God for government. Now, many of those constructs are divinely inspired, we know, by the fruit that they bear and how they relate to God's purpose for government. It's, it's really wonderfully said, uh, I like how you stated that uh, God created government, people created politics, and, and therein lies the rub. Uh, and you alluded to that. Where have we come as a nation when we have forgotten the divine inspiration for government so that we are truly serve the purpose of being one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all? So we think we're smarter. So we decide, oh, you know, we're going to rearrange the, the family construct. We're going to rearrange the roles of male and female. We're going to redefine all of these things. The problem is we don't have generations to experiment to understand their outcome. God knows the outcome. So he can weigh in in a way that we can't. So it's, it's difficult for uh, humans, uh, as much as we are in rebellion against divine authority, to embrace the reality that maybe there is a social reality that pre-exists our current generation that has been subscribed to by civilizations throughout history, that there's family, 
that family is foundational to society, that there's a set of moral values and moral code that guide us, that community begins and socialization, socialization begins in the context of the family. And the Bible feeds all of that. The Bible gives order. You know, we talk about, uh, you know, in the beginning God created, and that's an interesting word, bara, in, in the Hebrew, because it doesn't just mean create from nothing, but it means to order to bring order and fill that order. And that's exactly what God did. So we're talking about divine order versus human order. How do we get all of us on board so that we have a common hope, a common bond, and perhaps do it in a bipartisan way? You know, I had the opportunity to pray uh, for the opening of the Senate um, last month. And in my prayer, I talked about our love for free market and our concern for the least of these, the most vulnerable in society, coming together in the spirit of collaboration towards the common good. And I think that that's what we need to work towards. Instead of uh, separating ourselves based upon our tribe, maybe we need to think beyond tribalism and begin to say, well, wait a minute, we've got a nation here. And if that nation that we declare is undivided, indivisible, <laughs> under God, then maybe we need to revisit those foundational principles that made us who we are as a nation and has positioned us where we are as a number one superpower. To move away from those foundations, we lose that positioning in this global village that be, that's becoming smaller and smaller. We have a responsibility as people of faith to urge our elected officials to measure their judgments and decisions according to God's perspective on the nature and ordering of human society. We get back to that, we'll see a healing in our nation. Thank you, Dr. A.R. Bernard. Thank you. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Mm -hmm.